This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Podcast, the Christmas edition. I'm Lara Prendergast. So it's the end of the year and we can safely say that 2018 hasn't been any less loopy than its recent predecessors. In this year's final Spectator podcast, we'll be taking a look at some of the major political and cultural events of the year with a few of our favourite commentators and experts and we'll be casting a look forward to 2019. We'll be talking about Labour. It hasn't had a great year, but is it closer than ever to government? Plus, we'll be looking at the divides that have split Europe. And finally, we'll be looking at Trump and how he settled into the second year of his tenure. But first, a little bit of everyone's favourite thing, Brexit. At the beginning of the year, David Davis was still Brexit secretary. We hadn't yet struck a deal with the EU and few people had heard of the word backstop. So what has happened this year? I'm joined by our political editor, Jane Forsyth, the New Statesman's political editor, Stephen Bush, and Justice Minister, Rory Stewart, one of the only advocates of Theresa May's Brexit deal. So, James, at the start of the year, the Brexit secretary was David Davis and Boris Johnson was still in the Foreign Office. Do you think our negotiating position looked a little stronger back then? I think this year has not developed to to Brexit's advantage, I think it would be be fair to say. I think in a way, though, actually, if we go back to an event that happened this time last year, it was that that joint report in December where the the, the pass was essentially sold on the Irish border question. That is what has bedeviled the negotiations ever since. And I I think there comes a problem. The problem that Theresa May has had stems from there, but also stems from how she handled it, which is she signed up to this agreement and then instantly in London, cabinet ministers who had concerns about it, we don't, oh, it doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean that, don't worry about it, these are just words, it's all irrelevant, it's a bit of fine language, it doesn't mean anything more than that. Meanwhile, the Europeans viewed it as a serious legal document. And the problem then got worse because David Davis went on television and essentially repeated these assurances to a nation saying, oh, this isn't legally binding. <laughs> At which point the European Union turned around and said, well, it bloody well soon will be if that's your attitude. And I think we've seen this problem play out all the way through the Brexit negotiations, which is that the UK side has not known what it wanted. It has allowed the EU to draft the legal text. And in any negotiation, the person who is drafting the legal text has a huge advantage. And then when it has signed up to things, it's slightly denied the reality of what it signed up to. And I think one of the reasons that, that, that there was such shock when Theresa May unveiled her Brexit deal on the Tory benches was Theresa May had never really sat her MPs down and said, look, this is where it was going to end up. I remember sitting in the press gallery for kind of all uh, three and a half, four hours of questions from Tory MPs. And what was remarkable was how many people were getting up to ask questions about things that had been an object to things that had been settled months ago. And they sounded, and they, I don't think this was for effect, but they sounded genuinely shocked by what was there. Because I think the problem was that Theresa May has never felt confident enough to say, actually, this is where we're heading because the result was 52-48. I lost the majority in general election, so Parliament isn't going to sanction this or that. And so, they're, they're, and what we're seeing at the moment, and why she's having such a struggle to, to, to make any progress in getting her deal through is this clash between what people were expecting and the reality. And when we're looking back, what did you make of Chequers when it was first unveiled? I think it was a smart deal. I think it's the best possible deal for the country strategically because the other two options, which are a hard 
effectively no-deal Brexit or remaining in the EU would leave the country incredibly divided and polarised for decades to come. And it's not a... Because it's not a general election, because it's a decision that defines the next 20, 30 years of your national history and its relationship with your closest neighbour, you've got to make a strategic choice that can settle. And if you try to go to one of the extremes or the other and alienate, by definition, half or more of the population by doing that, you're going to create continual uncertainty which will undermine our relations with Europe. So the smart move of Czechos basically is to leave the political institutions of the European Union while remaining very closely connected to it economically and politically and puts us in a position over the next five, ten years to watch as Europe changes and then decide strategically how we wish to engage with a changing Europe. And Stephen, of course, the EU then actually rejected the Czechos deal. What was it that they couldn't actually agree to on it? Well, the, the EU's objection is, is to the fact that it is cherry-picking, although I've, I always took the view that actually Chequers as a document primarily matters because in terms of the strategic choice of whether or not to be a rule-taker within the economic but not the political project or to be floating loose in the belief that there is sort of some benefit or enduring political settlement that can be built out of that choice, she basically went, well, look, I will be a, a rule taker and I will get as close to as close to the European Union as I can while maintaining the central majority maker which was the desire to end the free movement of people. And James, back in November we wrote about May's withdrawal deal and said that both options were fairly unpalatable. I mean where do you think we've now got to on that? I, I think we are still in this choice where where all the, the options are all becoming increasingly unpalatable, but at some point the country will have to pick one. I, I think right now there are, you know, sometimes what a politician says is infuriating because it is true. And when Theresa May essentially says that the three options on the table now are her Brexit deal, which obviously has all sorts of problems, this kind of Norway plus idea where the UK would basically stay in the single market in the customs union but not have a say on EU rules. Essentially, the UK would turn into, would be out of the political project, be out of a common agricultural policy and the common fisheries policy. But in nearly every other respect, you'd essentially be a non-voting member of the EU. Or you're looking at a second referendum, which would be so much more... I mean, it would make the first one look like the Lincoln-Douglas debates in terms of, you know, d- democratic discourse. But it also would be so inherently divisive because any Leave campaign in a second referendum will simply run on, you told them once, tell them again. They don't listen, the elite. They don't listen. And and that will, that will polarise the country still further. I think, you know, I was talking to one person on the Leave side, very closely involved in the last referendum, who I think judgment is found sound on this, he thinks that the result, Leave would still win, but, but by that kind of narrow 52-48 margin. But what he says is that when you, what you would see last time round, nearly everywhere in the country last time round was somewhere within a 60 to 40 band. His view is that next time round, there'd be far more 80-20 splits, that you basically that the vote in the towns of England for Brexit would hugely go up, but the vote for Remain in London, in Scotland, would, would soar. So you'd actually end up with a far more divided and polarised country at the end of that second referendum process than we have even now. And Rory, you've been a supporter of Maysdale. What is it that you support about it? What I support about it is that I think it's the correct strategic choice for Britain for the next decade. As I've tried to explain, there are two things that we have to take on board. One is British politics, British Parliament, which is we're a very divided, polarised nation. 
where Brexit and Remain basically are each claiming a monopoly of wisdom, each wanting to crush the opposition, each accusing anyone who disagrees with them of being a traitor to the people and the country. And the only way of resolving those kinds of conflicts is to try to find a pragmatic middle ground, not to deny the validity of the other arguments, but to listen to them and try to produce a deal that has elements that respect both sides. Leave the European Union, yes, control immigration, yes, but also take on board the remain anxiety about the economy by remaining closely integrated into Europe, particularly for things like the car industry. The second thing, though, that's so important is to think about the fact that we have had for 50 years an ambivalent relationship to Europe. And you can't resolve an ambivalent relationship to Europe by either lurching back, as it were, into the domestic bed halfway through the divorce proceedings, or by trying to cut off all links and pretend Europe isn't just on the other side of the channel. A mature, serious attitude to Europe has to be Britain leaving the political institutions and, to some extent, sorting out what it wants, working out what kind of regulations it wants, what kind of tariffs it wants, what kind of relationship with the United States it wants, what kind of foreign policy it wants. Do we want a view on what's happening in the Western Balkans? Do we want a view on what's happening in Turkey? Do we have opinions on the kind of environmental regulations and structures that we have? What do we want actually to be importing from the United States? What do we want to do about our farmers? What do we want to do about immigration? What are the social, cultural impacts of immigration, not just economic, all these things? And the best way of sorting it out is not by trying to stay in Europe, because frankly, that would be crazy and actually pretty impolite to the Europeans to be sitting in the middle of the European project while we tear ourselves to pieces. Nor does it make sense to knock ourselves into a crazy nose deal, zombie deal, never deal situation. The best way to think this stuff through is by stepping out respectfully, calmly, moderately, and sorting ourselves out and positioning ourselves for the next decade. I mean, I, to be honest, instinctively agree, right? Then if you take the view that the referendum result cannot be reversed, and I do not see how it would successfully be... Seeing as what were the causes of, of Brexit last time, 30 years of, of cultural sort of Euroscepticism and hostility, well, that hasn't gone away, discontent because of years of, of low-pay public sector spending cuts hasn't gone away, a, shall we say, unhelpful... Labour Party leadership, which meant that the main pro-European force in the country was not as active or as effective a, a force in the referendum as many pro-Europeans would have liked. Well, which ones of those problems have improved, if you're uh, pro-European, and which ones of them have got worse? I think the answer is basically all of them have got worse. But this is the hardest negotiated exit. There is no more distant relationship and I think one of the weird things this year is the huge amount and not just in Europe the huge amount you know not just in the European issue a huge amount of what I think of as 2017 election denialism right you have a large number of Labour MPs who still want to go around going I don't need to reconcile how I feel about him as Prime Minister because he won't win after an election result which bluntly shows them that argument does not apply you have a bunch of pro-Brexit Conservative MPs who want to live in a world in which they aren't forced to uh, have a deal which does not put a border on the island of Ireland but cannot go, well, we'll just treat Northern Ireland differently, which means that you end up with something like the withdrawal agreement. And one of the problems of politics is that until one of the particular groups in Parliament accepts that the 2017 election did happen, it wasn't just a particularly weird shared dream, we are going to continue to be in a very dicey position. 
James, it feels this year that we've spoken a lot about the backstop, which is perhaps something that wasn't really mentioned at the time of the referendum, or Ireland really in general. Why do you think that's caused quite so many problems? I think, I think the first thing to say is that the, the Irish border issue is, is, is not inventive, but it has undoubtedly, I think, been exaggerated in that what has happened is that you've got into a situation where, from the point of view of the Republic of Ireland, they had deep concerns about what Brexit would mean for them, not just in terms of Northern Ireland, but in terms of their trade generally, because huge amounts... I mean, first of all, the Republic of Ireland and the UK joining, the, the, as it then was, European Economic Community at the same time, solved an Irish dilemma. It meant that they could treat with the UK as equals within a broader framework. And so you didn't have to get into the kind of mistakes that de Valera made straight after independence of trying to create this kind of separate Irish economy that was totally detached from the UK. That, that problem was solved. And the Irish government was kind of explicit from, from the moment after. I mean, it was explicit during the Brexit vote, but it didn't want it to happen. And then from afterwards, it was explicit that it wanted that Brexit to be as soft as possible. You know, the UK in the single market and the UK in the customs union. I think one of the things that then happened was that this kind of coalesced with a concern about the border in Northern Ireland, and which is genuine. And that led to a like, well, if we're going to have frictionless trade across that border, because so we don't need any infrastructure, any of this or any of that, then the same should apply for the whole of the UK. And then, as Stephen uh, was pointing out, the 2017 election compounded this issue because I, I think if it hadn't been for the fact that this was a hung parliament where the DUP hold the balance of power, I, I think there would have been a greater willingness to, cons to consider some specific pro provisions for Northern Ireland within the withdrawal agreement. You know, there, or, you know, there is that wonderful... I mean, already when it comes to agriculture, Northern Ireland is treated differently from the rest of the UK. There's that wonderful line from Ian Paisley that my constituents are British, but my cows are Irish. And you know, you could have seen some pragmatic, sensible deal with, you know, minimal checks done in this way or that. It would have seen Northern Ireland treated in a mildly different way to respect the various bits of the all-Ireland economy, you know, the single energy market, the essential single agricultural market. But what happened is, with the DUP there, holding the balance of power in Parliament, the debate and the dynamic changed. And then I think you also look at some people in the government, you know, the Treasury and Philip Hammond, you know, they, they wanted to make an argument for frictionless trade to protect, as Rory was saying, things like the car industry. But they realised that that argument was more difficult to prosecute than an argument about protecting the union was. And so if you look at the fact is this, you know, the, the, the real reason that the government is going for frictionless trade isn't purely to do with the Northern Irish border, it's to do with all these cross, you know, pan-European supply chains and all that. But these arguments are all being advanced behind the Irish border rather than making them explicitly because I think there was a feeling that making them explicitly was more difficult to reconcile with the results of the referendum. And Rory, do you think that May's deal offers a good solution to the issue of the Irish border? Firstly, I, I think the important thing is not to see it as one deal amongst many deals. Right? These other seven things that are floating around Parliament are just not deals. They're wish lists. They're hopes. They haven't been negotiated with anyone. This is an over 500-page document. This is two years of negotiation. This is thousands of hours of work. This is the only deal. And it's the only worked-out solution to any of these problems. It's the only worked-out solution to the Irish border. It's the only worked-out solution to the supply chains. It's the only worked-out solution to immigration. It's the only worked-out solution to withdrawal. So fundamentally, as James said, we are in a world in which we have to acknowledge that we are facing either this deal or varieties of no deal. And the thing that I want to make 
clear on no deal is that a lot of the Brexiteers somehow assume that, okay, we'll leave, we'll go into no deal, there'll be three, four months of uncertainty, some businesses will readjust and then it'll be fine. What they're not being honest about is that were we to go into no deal, and that could be very soon in four months' time, there would be no parliamentary majority for any future deal either, right? Because there are only about 100 people in Parliament who are actually in favour of no deal. So there would be no majority for this future deal with the United States. There'd be no majority for what kind of deal you'd want with Europe. You'd actually be stuck in this very, very weird situation on some sort of substandard WTO rules for quite a long time while Britain still needed to work out what it wanted to do on tariffs, what it wanted to do on quotas, what it wanted to do on rules of origin, what it wanted to do on regulations. And all of that would be taking place without a majority for anything. And that's the point at which the business confidence really collapses, because they're not looking at a temporary transition period. They're not looking at, oh, well, there's a no deal for a few months. They're looking at a British political system that has actually proved publicly that it is entirely irresponsible and incapable of getting to any kind of agreement. Stephen, another theme this year has been Theresa May's resilience, and the Brexiteers tried to get rid of her earlier this week and failed. What does that now mean for Brexit? Well, it means that she, in theory, has a huge degree of flexibility. There are, of course, yeah, I I said earlier this is the hardest negotiated Brexit uh, available. There are, of course, other majorities to be found in the House of Commons. We still do have a situation where a large number of Labour MPs do not particularly care for their leader, don't like Brexit, are thinking of standing down at the next election anyway. So in theory, her survival does give her immunity to you know tinker with the political declaration in that way and pass something still still closer to the European Union. In practice, I don't think it changes very much because her political aims and her interpretation of the referendum, which I am reluctantly uh, forced to agree with, is that the majority maker was a desire to end free movement, which means you end up with this withdrawal agreement. And James, second referendum, how likely is that now looking at this stage? I think the second referendum is becoming increasingly likely because, as Stephen was saying, the, the, the only... If you can't pass Theresa May's deal, and if you think, as Rory said, and I think Rory's probably right about this, Parliament would find some way to try and stop no deal and I think Parliament wouldn't find it that hard to stop no deal because I don't think Theresa May wants to do no deal if you had a Prime Minister who was hell bent on doing no deal and was prepared to you know to use whatever powers at the executive's disposal to get there maybe you could get there but you can't you're not going to get there with a Prime Minister who doesn't really want to do it and a cabinet which includes people who explicitly will say that they wouldn't they wouldn't allow it to happen so then you know people say oh what about this Norway option the problem with the Norway option is it involves continuing free movement, so it doesn't satisfy Theresa May. And I think that also the, the, the kind of vote to Norway sailed, I think, in that lots of people who would have accepted it straight after the referendum can now see this, that what they see as the prize of remaining in the, the, the European Union within their grasp. And so they are determined to kind of push hard for this second referendum. Now, I think this second referendum, it, it is a very dangerous thing to wish for from, if you are a Remainer. Not only because, as Stephen said, all the things, uh, all the reasons why you shouldn't be certain that Leave would win, but also I think if Leave wins a second time, I think you end up with a much harder Brexit, because at, at that point Parliament really is 
dicing with its legitimacy if it continues to say, well, we won't do it because we don't think it's in the right interest of a country. And I think one thing we've ignored is that in the run-up to the, to the 2016 referendum, there, there, was, there was a huge amount of concentration on Europe's troubles because they were in the news, whether it be the Eurozone or the migration crisis. I think we in the elite are not looking at those things right now because we are so fixated on what is happening in Westminster. I think the public are still seeing them. The public are still seeing riots in Paris. And they still and they still think, you know, Britain essentially joined the European Economic Community because it looked like Europe had the post-war solution and Britain didn't have any answers. You know, it appeared that Europe was this much more prosperous place than the UK. It was growing faster. It still doesn't feel that way. I mean, what's remarkable, given how sluggish UK growth has been in recent years since the referendum is, but it's still not doing that badly in comparison to the Eurozone. And this, I think, is one of the reasons why a second referendum would not necessarily return the result. But some people are convinced that that it would. And Rory, just finally, I mean, what's next for the Prime Minister? You support her deal, but do you think she can actually get it through Parliament? I have to believe she can get it through because I believe in the end that Britain is sane. I think this is democracy red in tooth and claw. I think it's at the moment feels very chaotic. But anybody looking at this logically and thinking through two or three steps ahead has to begin to understand that unless you're going to go for no Brexit or no deal, you're going to be talking about something like this deal. And therefore, I have to believe in some mysterious way, Parliament is going to come to its senses, that somehow we're going to lock ourselves in that chamber and we're going to come up with a majority for this deal. That will have to involve her getting concessions from Europe, that will have to involve getting the DEP back on side, that will have to involve getting back the moderate part of the Brexiteers who voted for a lot. But it will also have to involve reaching out to moderate Labour. Now, none of that is easy, but somehow I still believe this country can do it. I would be really deeply depressed if I felt that we had become a country so polarised, so divided, so negative about everything, that actually the only sensible, pragmatic, moderate solution left to us is rejected for routes that are much more dangerous and much more risky. Thank you all. Looking for a new podcast to add to the mix? Then why not join me, Katie Balls, for Women With Balls, the Spectator's latest podcast series. In it, I'll be sitting down with the trailblazers of today to talk about their career goals and what makes them tick. So far, we've had Emma Barnett, and that's now available. Later this month, I'll be speaking to Liz Truss, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, as well as a host of other names. I do hope you'll join me. And you can find us on Spectator Radio. And next, as the Tory party tears itself apart... The prospects of a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn have never seemed quite so likely. But has the Labour Party reconciled with its moderate MPs and got over its anti-Semitism problem? And does it even have a coherent Brexit position? Joining me now is our political correspondent Katie Balls, political commentator Paul Mason and Labour MP Jess Phillips. So Jess, I'm going to start by asking you to cast your mind back to the local elections back in May. What were your memories of that time? I mean, it seems like another lifetime ago, doesn't it? The local elections. My memories are there was a big talking up of things that were going to happen in London, which I found is always the case in politics. So there was a lot of talk about Wandsworth, was it? I believe people kept saying it was to Margaret Thatcher's favourite council. I, I haven't picked my own favourite council yet. I've not tried them all. But there was big talk about Labour possibly taking over in Wandsworth. 
and I went out and campaigned there, in fact, and that didn't come to pass. And I think there was quite a lot of talking up about Barnet. Am I? I'm, I have to say, I'm not the best person to comment on <laughs> London Council. The spectator was very nervous because we did a cover saying "Red London" with all these kind of uh, red flags swimming in, but. Uh, and in Barnet, and then the the view was in Barnet that what had happened was some of the issues around the anti-Semitism scandal had affected the local elections. Where I live in Birmingham, it's, I seem to recall it was sort of, we ended up pretty much in the same situation we went in with. There was no great surge, a bit of decline in certain areas, a bit of gain in others. Certainly where I live, I'd say the more affluent areas were more likely to be going Labour, where the classic Labour areas, the area just outside where I grew up, went went weirdly mixture of Tory and Green, which <laughs> shows that the electorate will uh, give you a bloody nose that you can't quite understand. And the, Mike, the Michael Gove effect, environmental conservatives. Yeah, I mean, I as somebody who grew up in Druid Seat, this bit of Birmingham, I can't say that I could recall much environmentalism, but who am I to say? But it was, it was not as good as Labour had expected, but not... A terrible tragedy. I think, like all elections that we've had in the past sort of couple of years, a sort of deadlock situation occurred once again. Nothing has changed. Going into the local elections, the Tories were terrified, or at least dreading them, because it was probably the first big test since that SNAP election where Theresa May lost her majority, and it felt like momentum in more ways than one were behind Labour. But I think in the end, it was a little bit anticlimactic, partly because I think expectations were built so high that even though Labour did really well in London, you know, took control, made gains in some of these councils like Wandsworth because they didn't take them over and because Barnett, you know, Labour didn't take control of that, it meant that the Tories were able to claim, oh, you know what, a bit better than expected. Even when we looked at the results, they were pretty bad. So I think at the time there were some Labour MPs who were not happy with the expectation management from higher up in the echelons of Labour. Paul just mentioned anti-Semitism there and that row began to really around the time of the local elections. I mean, how big a problem has anti-Semitism been for Labour this year? And and do you think people now see it as an anti-Semitic party? Well, I hope they don't see it as an anti-Semitic party. I think it actually began before that, if you remember. I can remember it being on my radar in sort of early February, because I remember being in Maidenek, actually, at the concentration camp then and coming back and thinking, God, you know, what (laughs) what an amazing contrast between... You, you know, where so in Poland, where everything is, even you know, even the far right are very careful about the language they use around anti-Semitism. Where, and, and I think that it's fair to say that people on the left have not been, not been, and I think it, it did, it built to a crescendo, and I don't think it was handled well by the Labour NEC. You know, they just they decided to do one thing, briefed another thing, spent another month, and the month between the two things. They could have easily, and there were people inside the shadow cabinet just saying, look, just pass this IRA definition. It's not perfect. It's very difficult to legally enforce it, but you can at least pass it. And once it was passed, if you remember, lots of people went, this is it, now they're going to use it, you know, i.e. the pro-Israeli people are going to use it to attack everybody on the left. It hasn't been used to attack everybody on the left at all. And so, in hindsight, we should have... Killed it earlier, and I thought. I think also it, what what I've learned this year is how, you know, say say two years ago, I was very resistant to the idea that there are you know on the fringes of Labour there are sort of people who are both left and anti-Semitic, 
because I was thinking about the old anti-Semitism and I've, I've come across isolated examples now of what I would call the new anti-Semitism. And, I've, and by going to Poland, I've, I've understood better actually where that also comes from. I'm not saying, by the way, it comes from Polish people in Britain. It comes, it comes but, but, but in a place like Poland, they've got a very acute experience of the new anti-Semitism. So that's a kind of populist, sort of, you know, left-leaning, anti, anti-corporate, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And, but, you know, because real old anti-Semitism is really in your face in Poland, it's very, very strong, you know, the blood libel, etc. you can then see how a kind of new anti-establishmentism piggybacks onto it. So, you know, it's not been a great year for, for, for dealing with it, but I've found, because as somebody whose face is very associated with the left of Labour, I've had a lot of discussions I mean, I've had a lot of discussions with my Jewish friends, both sort of pro and anti-Zionist about it, and also just people who randomly stop you in the, in the airport. Mm-hmm. And you just, and I find by sitting down and talking to people, you get somewhere. And I think one of the strongest arguments I've, not so much argument in favour of Labour, but an argument in, in, in favour of how to deal with it, is this, you meet a racist, you want to give them a way back from being a racist. If you meet an anti-Semite, horrible though that is, if, like me, you've got a, a Jewish background, it's, you want to give them a way back. And I want to be able to give people a way back from these dead-end, you know, destructive ideas. Even people who've said stupid things, I want to give them a way back. So it, it's about, for me, const- even for people who are that horrific thing, left anti-Semites, I want to give them a way away from the anti-Semites. I want to give them a way out of the anti-Semitism. And that has to be done by education, argument. And there's no better thing than exposure to the, uh, to the fruits of what happens, to the genocidal outcome. That's why I'm, you know, I'm a big f- fan of the whole, you know, Holocaust Memorial, Holocaust Educational events. And I would like, you know, say in 2019, a great constructive reconciliation thing might be for Labour to really make it a thing out of trying to go to many of these events. And Jess, as a Labour MP, what have you made of Labour's association with anti-Semitism? Well, it's heartbreaking. It's not for me to say whether Labour is considered to be an anti-Semitic party. It is for Jewish people to tell me whether that is the case and unfortunately they tell me that is the case. Not exclusively, most of them I think as Paul has said come up to me in the street and will say say you know thanks for sticking up for us we really hear your voices you 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 know people who are speaking out against it give faith back to left politics in this regard but lots of them feel very 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 well frightened actually is the reality and feel that they are not don't have a place in the Labour Party anymore and if they're telling us that we've got to just do whatever we can to make that not the case today and yesterday Luciana Berger my Jewish colleague has received hundreds and hundreds of messages that appear to be from the left because she said that we should have a no confidence vote and then a people's vote which you know it's not new she's been saying it for a long time but because it's seen to be not the position that Jeremy Corbyn is taking at the moment they are attacking her for saying it as if it's something to do with Jeremy Corbyn because you've got to remember that if I say I'm having cornflakes for breakfast people consider that to be an insult to Jeremy Corbyn that 
but how that comes out to her is that she's been called a fifth columnist. Her and Ruth Smith have been having people say that, that it's Israel, that Netanyahu is giving them their orders about the people's vote. I'm not sure of Benjamin Netanyahu's view on the people's vote. I doubt very much that he's telling Luciana Berger what to do. But that, so this isn't something that has gone away in the left of politics. And unfortunately for Jeremy Corbyn, it is a tool that people who think they're trying to protect him use. And that has got to be, that has got to be stamped out. What we're asking for in the Women's Parliamentary Labour Party is that the Labour Party takes responsibility for gathering this evidence. It's, it's you know, awful for Luciana that she has to sit and go through and, and report all of these things. It must be deeply traumatic. We think that the Labour Party should take responsibility for doing that proactively for people like Luciana, for Ruth, and for some other Jewish, largely Jewish women, I have to say, other Jewish women who the, the left anti-Semites seem to have targeted in the name of the Labour Party. Yeah, I think 2018 was the year when it did feel like Labour leadership started to take the issue more seriously. And that was partly because there were some incidents that occurred which I think forced them to think about their stance. So we had the Jeremy Corbyn, the murals. Mm. There was an anti-Semitic mural and old Facebook posts emerged which appeared to say appeared to show Jeremy Corbyn saying this shouldn't be taken down. Now, he's since gone to try and clarify his comments on that, but I think there were a few things like this that happened, which meant that those people who were going out into the airwaves and defending Jeremy Corbyn, saying that, you know, this is a smear, began to think, actually, there is there is a little bit of a problem here. Maybe little is the wrong word. but there is, And that then led Jeremy Corbyn and his team to have several pieces, you know, in The Guardian, writing and, and accepting about the pockets of anti-Semitism and where they were. And I, I think where, perhaps, like a cynic would say, they were pushed into it. They have not been leading from the front. But the ultimate messages I think people around Jeremy Corbyn and then the Labour Party do feel like the issue is is now being you know debated and being acknowledged more than it was. Mm-hmm. Paul this year there's also been quite a lot of talk about deselection and quite a clear divide is now opening up between moderate Labour members and the more left-leaning ones what do you think that's meant for the Labour Party? Well I'm moderate but I'm also left-leading. I'm not moderate just by the way I'm <laughs> a bloody radical. Yeah. I hate um, it when people call me a moderate I find it actually really insulting. You're to rebel. No, nothing <laughs> moderate about me at all. See and I'd agree with that that's why I th- so but if there's a dichotomy I, I would you know if I take my own example and I don't want to be too personal about it but I'm in a uh, you know, we're sitting here in central London, across the river. It, you, the first thing you come to is the biggest council estate in Britain. And then the next thing you'll come to is a load of new, very tiny flats built for very young people, you know, young adults who, who can barely afford them. And then there's a few kind of old geezery lords and ladies and MPs. This is Vauxhall. And our MP supports fox hunting. Uh, she supports hard Brexit. She's aligned with Ulster unionism. She took it upon herself this year to decide that Oman was a specialism. I don't know how big the Omani community is in, in Lambeth, but it's not as big as other nations. And and what do I do? What can I do to just gently suggest that she doesn't represent either the middle-class sort of upwardly mobile educated part of the constituency or the working class? What can I do? Nothing. She is a special case. I, I know, think that you I know, must but, do hard cases make bad law but 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 what we wanted at the conference was to try and to do open selections I mean in other words that didn't come from momentum neither did it actually originally come from momentum or from the unions and labor left and in the end the unions squashed it because we thought if we can get a situation where 
one you know once every parliament there is basically do we want who do you want as mp we could we could take the pejorative aspect out of it because at the moment it has to be done through the so-called trigger ballot okay. and what you've now got is both sides of the party loading the bases because the technicalities of a trigger ballot mean that you can avoid it if numerous socialist societies affiliated at branch level don't want one so you've then suddenly got labor women the, all the different ones affiliating at local level and then you've got union branches affiliating to try and counter them. And so you're going to, you've got actually a weird reinvention of 18th century politics, the rotten borough, in order to prevent a reselection. But, you know, I mean, I, I think the need for a lot of reselections has kind of gone because the, the, the issues that were really driving people so heavily seem to have, I, I would argue, as over a year, have receded in intensity. There's some clearly still very heavily intense, but... Not as much as it was. Yeah, I mean, I, what I would say about it is that it's... I mean, I'll be honest, that's my thing. It was being used by the Labour Party to try and control and make people like me say what they want us to say. And it is, it has been used as a threat. Mm. It gets a bit like the stuff that happens to Luciana that we've already talked about. I get, I mean... There'll be a hundred messages on my Twitter feed today or I'll get emails saying, can't wait till Jess Phillips gets deselected. And it... It's done to make Labour MPs say what the leadership might want us to say. And it's just a threat. It's it's classic power and control modelling. I'm not against the trigger necessarily. I'm not I, I'm personally not against one member, one vote, people having to re-elect me in my constituency. I won on a ballot only I mean, I'm one of unlike Kate Howie, I suppose, I was I already went through a full mm. selection only like four years ago. Mm. So it's it, it doesn't necessarily frighten me. I do think that the Labour Party really needs to be careful that it doesn't end up looking like it is just talking about itself. And what a reselection in my seat would do, for example, is it would take six months of time out of yeah. just before an election attacking the government to have us attacking each other mm. and that is no that is not a good look and the Labour Party should think very very carefully about that but to be fair I think that the leadership of the Labour Party probably trying to quash it at the moment I don't get any sense that they're trying to kick out people like me but unfortunately they have sort of let a bit of a kraken out and they can't control it. Let's talk about the leadership Katie has it been a good year for Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell? I think it has been a good year for Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell because they have consolidated their power further. If you ignore some of the the low points, we've already touched on anti-Semitism and how it's been difficult for Jeremy Corbyn. I think it's been a particularly good year for John McDonnell, not just because he won Politician of Year at the Spectators Parliamentarian <laughs> that was the for Awards, him, which was <laughs> such a highlight he couldn't actually attend the awards. But but clearly, clearly a momentous moment. But if you look at the reasons why he won that, it is because he has had a good year and it does seem that when we were at Labour conference it happens before Tory conference it seemed like they knew what they wanted they had a very clear message and a lot of that related to John McDonald's policies and the idea of you know giving back control to workers and not in a way a conservative politician would want to do it but it touched on something you know the idea of shares and there's been this quite clear coherent vision they also had their party political broadcast our town which i think spooked a lot of conservative mps because it touched on that idea of again it seemed to be going for those leave voters which are probably the voters the conservative party now has to win the conservative party is 
quite toxic with lots of the kind of metropolitan swing voters who might have voted for David Cameron. So they want to be going for these potentially, you know, blue Labour style voters and that seemed to be where Labour was heading so I think in that sense they have a clear coherent vision they are in a muddle over Brexit but the great news for Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell is because they are in opposition it is really less important and it gets less scrutiny than the Conservatives and the Conservatives are making such noise with Brexit on their side less people are looking. Mm. Paul John McDonnell said earlier this year that Britain is now ready for a socialist Chancellor do you think he's right? Well We'll see in, in the sense that, you know, to the extent that it's not ready, there'll be resistance to, to what he wants to do if, it comes, if he comes to power. And the next phase of it will be how you deal with that resistance, what you give in on and what you don't. I mean, I think that what I've noticed is that since the 2017 election, the idea that you can't win on left policies, as long as those policies actually address a real and tangible issue in people's lives has, has kind of been moved to the sidelines. And I think that, on the, I mean, it, overall for the leadership, if you think about, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, they've been through a lot of things that haven't killed them. Uh, that's number one thing. What, Theresa May? <laughs> she's she's modelling yeah. it on them, maybe, at the yeah. moment. <laughs> I'd, I'd also say, if, if you want to say Corbyn and MacDonald, I think you... To be fair, you'd have to say Corbyn MacDonald Starmer right now. Yeah. Because Starmer's actually created a not only a brand but a modus operandi over, you know, a level of expertise and 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 confidence in the position, which whatever inside the PLP, there's lots of different positions on Brexit. But you know, Starmer, I think last week stood up at the PLP, this week at the PLP and stood up and said, you know, whatever we do, we do it together. I think there's an a, amazing amount of confidence in among a very diverse set of MPs in Starmer as somebody who will negotiate through this period for that. And I think the fact that you've had both McDonnell and Starmer moving closer to the PV position Mm -hmm. is not accidental either. But for me, as a kind of Labour member and and sort of, you know, person person of influence, whatever you want to call me, I, I think in some ways the leadership's too successful because there's a whole bunch of, of, MPs and junior ministers who are incredibly talented and what I keep wondering is what do they think? What do they think when they're not towing the line of the discipline over Brexit, blah, blah, blah? Because the future of Labour going forward 10 years will depend on what what their philosophy is, what their economics are. Because I know what McDonnell and Corbyn's are because I grew up with them in, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s as a Labour activist. But say Clive Lewis or, you know, on the other side, precisely Luciana or Stella Creasy or yourself, what do you believe in? doesn't get a great airing. And I'd love for 2019 be the, to be the year where we started to find some of that out. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. What I think is absolutely phenomenal about Corbyn's success in this regard, in what Paul is saying, is that, you know, actually they are victims of their own success and people feel that they don't have time to place their vision, their... What, what used to be the old pamphlet writing. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that's dying a death because... It is a bit command and control, but I'd say John has had a better year than Jeremy, and I would, and I'd say largely that was because of some of the anti-Semitism stuff that very much was specifically around things that Jeremy had done. John, I think John is a, not a man I know particularly well. We don't fall out in the corridors or anything. We speak to each other perfectly amiably, but he plays an incredibly clever game actually of being very quite radical in his 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 economic and political thinking at the same time as 
I mean, it's called sort of like smooth bank manager sort of style that he has. And I think that John McDonnell, more so than Jeremy Corbyn, is concerned about the winnability, about winning elections and the electorate. And I think that it sort of shows in his style and his demeanour and how he is always the one who gets sent out when things are difficult, actually. But it's funny because John does all of that without being the heir apparent in any way. I don't think that John McDonnell will ever take over the le- the, the leadership of the Labour Party. But I, So I would say he has had a good year and I would agree with Keir. And Keir, just by virtue of being the same person for the entire period that we've been talking about Brexit, looks better than the other side. It's like Keir is the constant in Brexit, mm. isn't he? And he has used what is essentially a Remainer heart to keep the position moving along in the Labour Party, but to do it with real statesmanship. And Katie, what's the relationship been like this year between the leadership and the grassroots? I mean, has, how has momentum fed? What was interesting at Labour conference is it no longer seems to be, and I'm sorry, I'm going to use the M word, which neither of you like, but it no longer seems to be a battle between the moderates. Okay, sorry. And, momentum and, there. No, no. Marxism. Yeah. <laughs> Too many. Mention New controversial one. But yeah, it no longer seems to be a battle between you know, Blairites and then going against you know the Corbynistas. It seems that that has been won. And it was interesting at Labour conference, the fight appeared to be between momentum members and the trade unions there are disagreements yeah. behind the scenes about how the different rules would go through and it is this thing where now now that the Cor- Corbyn does have overall control of the party there are disagreements between the different factions and that is basically how much power should the membership have do you take that all the way do the should the unions still have weighted powers and how much to control do the unions I mean you can talk a good game but do you actually want to cede all that power to the membership and I think that is one of the matters which this year has has basically come to the forefront Finally, we should probably talk about Brexit because <laughs> the B word, because that probably has Bolshevism. been <laughs> the defining issue this I year. Bolshevism yeah. at the there's, going some, there's going to be some Bolshevism when it comes to the voting. It's a relief after. It would be a bloody relief to talk about anything other than. Paul, how do you think Labour has responded to the challenge of Brexit this year? Well, it's begun to move. Look, the the the, the problem. For Labour has been that, and when when Brexit was salient, minus you know less than thirty in in say something like the populist tracker, it, the idea that you could fight an election on bread and butter issues and generally identify yourself around those issues, and that Brexit was a distraction and it would be sorted out was was plausible. And remembering the local elections, Brexit really barely came up in the local elections, but now it's changed. I think the art of politics is understanding that political questions are also part of what you, we might call the class struggle. And so many of my Labour colleagues don't like this. And their, their response is, I just want Brexit over. I don't know. What, I don't care what the outcome is. Hard Brexit, soft Brexit. Just get it over. Then we can get back on the doorstep and talk about housing. Mm-hmm. And, what, and we, you know, people like me, trained and sort of, you know, immersed in Marxism, have always believed that these political questions are part of the class struggle. And that we can't get around them. We have to go through them. And that's why, you know, I think that Labour's been too slow, first of all, to, to embrace the possibility of a second referendum because it saw it as a threat coming from Chuck Ramuna and, and his and his and his band of friends. But 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 it, it they 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 should have embraced it quicker. They, we've seen good front bench voices now 
begin talking about it, but there still is there still is a bit of hostility towards it, and um, and it's on that basis. And there's a genuine thing in North. I don't know whether North includes your you know your mm, constituency yeah, here. Yeah, I mean anything that's not in London, it seems. There's a mean. genuine concern among Labour MPs that there's going to be a horrible culture war in their constituencies. I'm, I'm sorry, I just totally don't agree that there is going to be a culture well, war. No, but they think I, live, there is. I yeah. live there, and people are not gonna. I'm I'm not joking. I just think the idea that. It's really, really horrible about the white working classes. This is as if they're all violent and they're going to take to the streets. It's ridiculous. I mean, if you give me an example, you know, I did a big interview with, set of interviews with South Wales Labour activists, and what they were saying is, we don't want to have a second referendum, not because we don't want it, we want it and we want to remain. But, you know, a place like Merthyr, there's a 17,000 strong Facebook group, you know, devoted, closed Facebook group, devoted to attacking Labour. And what they allege is that it started out on council issues. Issues. It's gone to Europe issues, and now you know there's there's the odd Tommy Robinson yeah. thing going in there. Now they don't want to turn all issues of local antipathy towards Labour in a place like South Wales into weapons for the far right. But I, I disagree with them, and I think that I, actually we probably disagree. Mm. I I keep saying the Labour movement in a working class community is a line drawn through it in favour of values, and we want to get as many people on the side of our values as we can. But I grew up in a Labour community where, you know, my dad would say to me, he's a Tory, he's a strikebreaker, he's a scab, he's a racist. That That's that's working-class life. Yeah, that um, is what my dad was like, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> and so so we, we're used to drawing the line, and we, we shouldn't be frightened of drawing a line, albeit we should try and draw it as easily as possible for people to cross. What you can't do is start stigmatising yeah. entire communities. I mean, I, I totally agree with that position. I am really sick of people projecting something onto my community where I live and where I represent without actually ever hearing their voices. I had a bloke come in my office the other day and he, he not only is a Leave voter, he's an ex-military man, he's a working-class bloke, lives in a tower, but came in to give us some Christmas cards and he voted to leave. He went to the Brexit rallies, he met Pretty Patel, she gave him leaflets, he promised he was going to take her out. He was calling Theresa May a traitor he was, and he was saying she deserves nothing more than sort of, you know, really, really... And I said, oh, you know, John, I think you need to turn your language down a bit. And then I said, well, John, I believe in a people's vote. And he said, oh, do you, Bab? And I said, would you still vote for me? And he said, of course I will, you Labour. You do stuff for the people. And it didn't make any difference to him. And John is not unique where I live. In the general election, it were, even the snap general election, Brexit was not the issue that people talked to me about. I had to raise it with them. It was not the single biggest issue. And that will be the case again in a general election. General elections, although this time I think it would be much more about Brexit because like, even like my mates' WhatsApp groups that are normally just sending GIFs of like whatever's been on the latest BuzzFeed quiz. These are, are now, MPs, uh, are they? No. <laughs> some of them. But no, my normal friends have started being like, how many votes does she need to get kicked out? And how, many, how are we going to get this deal through? Why doesn't Corbyn want a referendum? I'm a bit like, this has changed. People are actually talking to me about this. So I think that, that it would be a more brexit election. But I, I think the Labour Party is at the very end of being able to play two ends against the middle. I think that they've played a relatively clever high-wire triangulation, but we will either fall to the ground and smash or we will do some amazing dismount. But... I, I personally think now is the time for the Labour leadership to move much further into... And it isn't a Remain camp. It is a deadlock. Ask the people, speak to them, 
and we've got to make sure that if we rerun this that we don't we don't talk about just figures and stuff. We talk about people's hearts and their minds and what they're scared of and what they love. And I'm afraid to say, you know, whilst I'm a big fan of Michelle Obama, the whole they go low, we go high. I mean, I think no. low wins. Sometimes we've got to go a bit low. I'm happy to go a bit low. I want to fight with Farage in the street and I will take him on. And, you know, I think that the Labour Party needs to get closer to that position because actually where I live when the article 50 vote was triggered I got thousands of emails from my constituents saying you better trigger it you you know it would be a betrayal mm. many I've had thousands in the last week they are almost I mean it's a 70 30 split for a people's vote or yeah. just to rescind article 50 you just there's use a, laterally. there's quite a lot of labor MPs polling their yeah. their email in and it's usually 70 to 80 percent remain yeah. it is. that's from constituents constituents who yeah, yeah you know so I, I mean, I think 2018 has been the year of Labour. If you were going to describe the Brexit position in one word, you'd go vague. <laughs> but going going into 2019, and particularly because I think there has been a thinking, you know, with people around Jeremy Corbyn, that the best way to navigate this really tricky, thorny issue to which there is no easy solution is to basically not take a strong stance and let the Tories lead the way and just let the kind of the ball roll, but, you know, don't, don't get involved in the crash. But as the Tories tear each other apart over this, the issue is going to come back to Labour, whether that is through Parliament's powers or a second referendum or the dream scenario for Jeremy Corbyn, a general election. So 2019 will be the time when they have to take a decision. Katie, Paul and Jess, thank you. Hello, I am Lara Prendergast, Spectator Life's food and drink editor. And I'm Olivia Potts, Spectator Life's vintage chef. Join us for a new podcast from Spectator Radio, Table Talk where we chat to guests ranging from Prue Leith to Bryony Gordon about their life through food. Just search for Spectator Radio on the iTunes store. And next, Brexit might be all that we can talk about, but Europe has actually got bigger issues on its hand. This year, Italy's election returned a coalition of Eurosceptic populists, while Angela Merkel is on the way out and Macron has some domestic troubles. With me to look over this year in European politics are Douglas Murray, our associate editor, and Anne McElvoy, senior editor at The Economist. So Douglas, what with the Italian elections and Merkel's resignation, do you think the story of Europe in 2018 has been a battle between Euroscepticism and the EU project? I'm not sure it is quite fair to say. I mean, there, there is certainly a battle of that that's been going on, but I mean, there are a whole set of different battles going on not just across the continent as a whole, but within each country in it. One of the things I'm struck by, I mean, I, I, I pretty much I think by the end of this year will have been in every EU country again this year. And I'm in usually in a different country every week or two. And I find just it's endlessly fascinating at the moment because basically the same sorts of stories are playing out everywhere, but they all have these very important local distinctions. And so, you know, I think some people from outside look at this and they say, well, there's this one story going on. And there's a lot of things. One of them is definitely some, you know, ongoing antagonism towards the EU. But, you know, you couldn't say that any one country other than Britain is that fixated solely on the EU bit of it at the moment. 
No, and I suppose people like to sort of have this idea of populism on, on the rise. I mean, do you think that, that that is fair, or do you think there are, as Douglas says, lots of different stories going on here? I think there are different populisms, but a common thread. If we could come back to Italy and Germany, because there's very good comparators, I would say that it's pretty clear that where Italy is in terms of just wanting to kick back against the EU to bust those fiscal targets, there's always a kind of wriggle room with the EU but it's pretty clear that Italy as it stands wants to go a different way in a way it wants to be like the Greece of a few years ago but it doesn't want that association with the left its association is with a right-wing populism well that's quite interesting isn't it Douglas because we used to think of the left used to sort of bust up kind of financial probity wasn't so bothered about that and the right like to play a bit more by the rules so I think there's definitely a challenge there I've no doubt that Germany, as the paymaster of the EU, will ultimately win that battle. But culturally, politically, I'm much less sure that Germany will win. I think Mm -hmm. there is something about Salvini, Matteo Salvini's challenge to the EU, which is saying control, accountability, these words we hear again and again. And even if Italy loses, (laughs) and I think it will, it will still carry that forward into the body politic of the EU. And that interests me almost more than who wins the battle yes. over the pounds, euros yeah. and whatever denomination you're in. No, that, that, that's definitely... I mean, they, previously, those who've been most sort of, you know, guardian-like towards the EU project have, have been able to pre- present opposition as being at the fringes and the margins of Europe. And this was really the year that that wasn't possible to keep that pretense up anymore, as Anne says, because of the Italian situation. It, it, it's... It's sort of getting closer and closer to Berlin in a way, and 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 it, it, as I said, that direction of travel has a consistency everywhere. But the fact that it's got to Italy, and also, of course, forget that, that extraordinary thing that we saw this year with the Italian elections and the, and the forming of a government that that these two parties, the League and Five Star, could come to d- together shows something very interesting. And you know, previously, sort of coalition governments in, let's say. Important EU member states, like say Austria, have, have as as uh, happened with the formation of the current Austrian government, been sort of broadly speaking of the same political uh, denomination, you know, uh, as as with the uh, the Conservative Party and the Freedom Party in Austria. But but this is this is something very new in Italy, and uh, and yes, this is so close to the centre of power in Berlin and Brussels that it's it's sort of unignorable, except that with the EU, of course, you always have that thing that the old. Stein's law that things that cannot go on won't, the EU always suggests otherwise, which is that things that cannot go on usually do. And Douglas, I know you don't like to use the word populism. No. We've talked about this before on the podcast. I think but... we've stumbled on this. <laughs> but do you, I mean, is there anything, you, you know, obviously seen lots of different things that are happening in, the, in Europe in the last year. Is there anything that's made you feel nervous? Oh, is there anything that hasn't made me feel nervous is a better way to frame the question, if you don't. I mean, I'm struck by the fact that in country after country of places you thought of as being politically stable, the political stability doesn't exist. And I'm in an obvious case. We're months on from the Swedish elections and the Swedish still haven't got a government. I mean, that, that's, that's quite striking. It, 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 I'm not, I don't think it's epochal, but it's just it's striking that it's, it's quite hard to point to the, the sort of the country we all want to be like, you know, headline writers and everyone we all like to have, you know, who's the next X? Who will be, where will be the next Y? And it's, it's sort of hard to, to work out who you'd be looking to if you were emulating stability at the moment. 
And Douglas wrote a piece in November. The headline was, Angela Merkel is on the way out and so is her vision for the EU. Do you think that's correct? Well, she's always on her way out, isn't she? She's always there <laughs> the next day. I mean, <laughs> so I, I, I enjoy some of, of this coverage. I think it's quite easy to over-egg the kind of Merkel must fail because populism is on the rise mm. and Douglas doesn't call it that, but he has some ism that he, he would probably identify it with. I think what's happening in Germany is very interesting and the, the story that got least play, certainly here in Britain, but I thought was quite telling, was the succession battle in the Christian mm. Democratic Union and it was basically came to the sort of mini Merkel candidate, Anna Great Kramp Kranbauer, who has a name which is going to test broadcasters from the Anglosphere till kingdom come. Therefore, she is likely to be in pole position to become the successor to Angela Merkel. But it also goes to show that there are various ways in which even if things have gone a bit wrong in your model and after 12 years of Angela Merkel and the, the challenges of that decision you need to let in a million refugees and migrants a couple of years ago, it's not surprising perhaps that there is a pushback. But the German system would appear to have a lot of shock absorbers. So when you say, what do you want to be like, Douglas? I would almost say like the challenge would be back to you. You know, People say it's all over, she's on her way out, etc. But if you have to come to an accommodation with popular anger mm. and uh, misunderstanding and a pushback against what you've done. Well, this doesn't seem to be like a terrible way to do it. You know, Merkel goes, but she goes quite slowly. Someone a bit like her has a go. And if that doesn't work, something else will happen. Mm. I think the problem that we've got perhaps with uh, Macron in France and, and where Brexit is at the moment, that it's either it works or there's a disaster. Mm. And actually for having little steps and stairs at the moment yeah. in the democracies. Yes, and I... I'm, I agree with that, but just one one thing I'd add, which is really Merkel's party, I think, have missed a significant trick on this because the obvious thing in German politics to do is to absorb the legitimate part of the public grievance and bring it in. And you couldn't do that with Merkel in place because she couldn't U-turn completely on the most important thing other than the Eurozone crisis, which she's had to deal with. So my own view was, was that the obvious thing was to replace her with somebody of her own party or the sister party who could, you know, rise and, 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 and fill this place. And the, somebody like Spahn, Zehofer even, would come in and look like they were really repudiating Merkel's legacy as an individual, but they could do all sorts of things that she wouldn't get away with personally because she couldn't do it and she couldn't say it. Now, I say this because, of course, in German domestic politics, they have the big problem of what do you do with the party of opposition? And... I think that the big problem that they're, they're making is that they keep on thinking that you can keep this out rather than bringing a little bit of it in. And that seems to me to be the challenge in German politics as elsewhere. And there are countries where it has been brought in a bit, the legitimate bit. And... But what makes you sure? I mean, for a start, Seehofer wasn't running and he's also no. wasted. Well, he's right? also he's weirdly been, stepped aside at exactly the moment. Yeah, he's Bavarian. Aside, I mean, so he's never yeah. actually going to, going to win outside Bavaria because it's a completely different politics. I, I think the candidate who most reflects what you were asking for was Friedrich Merz. Mm. And Friedrich Merz would have been very interesting. I think we'd have had a lot more fun writing uh, about him, but he'd been out of politics a long time. And, and here's my kind of counter challenge to you. That's all very well, but... This candidate has got to, you know, it's a Goldilocks recipe we're asking for. It's got to be a bit hot and a bit cold and just right. Now, Kramp Karrenbauer, although she appears a little bit like lukewarm to perhaps, you know, to the 
Anglo-Saxon taste. I think she is probably a bit more critical. I don't think she would have gone with the second wave. People will forget there was actually two waves of, of the refugee crisis under Merkel. Merz, you know, is a very rich guy. He's very interesting. He would travel very well. He'd probably have more interests in the city of London than many other German politicians. But, you know, the fact is, with big support, the former finance minister, very respected figure, Wolfgang Schäuble, he still didn't make it through. So it may be... You say they've missed a trick, but I'm not sure what a democracy is if it's not you know, coming to terms with some middle ground that half solves the problem and then maybe kicks the can down the road. It's all right for us to say they should have chosen someone else, but actually, in the end, as we know with selectorates, the party goes with what the party wants. Mm. So the party wanted a change from Angela Merkel. You're completely mm. right, but it didn't want to upend her legacy. That's the legacy of Germany for me at the moment. And Anne, what about Macron? I mean, do you think he can be the stabilising force mm. in the EU? No, I don't. I'm much more critical on Macron than I am on the sort of post-Merkel or late Merkel phrase. I think Macron's made an awful lot of unforced errors and a lot of them have come home to roost with the Gilets jaunes protests. For a start, if you're going to give your tax break back to the rich. I mean, you could say that the taxes were far too high on the rich, and I'm sure they were. But you know, it's a funny place to start unless you balance it off somewhere down the earnings scale. And then he stuck out in this awful Jupiterian thing. And I know France is France, but, you know, there is a limit to l'état c'est moi. And I think he's come up against it. I've also, I suppose, one reason I've rather cooled on Macron, and I probably be more pro the dear old liberal Democrats of uh, modern Europe than Douglas is. But I thought his treatment, we have a difficult enough problem with Brexit. A lot of it is homemade. But, you know, silly things like saying, well, if you want to get out of the situation we're in, if you're going to try and do some deal on the backstop, which we all know needs to be done, and that he puts a sort of slightly provocative point about, well, you know, French fishermen have to have access to British fishing waters. They go, for heaven's sake, don't start with a fish. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, you don't have to. It's not that important. One minute you're Jupiter, the next minute you're banging on about the fish. And I just think he kind of lost the plot because of the self-aggrandizement. I hope that he can go back to being the Macron of the mind that Liberal Democrats would like, and I would like. But I, I feel that he's had a less uh, certain touch than I would have hoped for. Yes, I, he he is two problems aren't there. I mean, there's him, and then there's his electorate. <laughs> he doesn't seem to like them very much. Well, does he? you know, I may, I think I mentioned in a piece earlier this year. There's this famous oddity of the French public that they're forever voting for revolutionary change and then resist all change, and they've done it again. I mean, you vote for a complete outsider <laughs> candidate. <laughs> complete outsider candidate who's not even got a party when he runs you say let's smash it up and then he makes some minor and then everyone burns everything down and 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 you know so there's the problem of the public but there is obviously the problem of Macron himself I mean I'm staggered by the way one of the things I I, I keep thinking at the moment is how strange it is that if certain politicians say something then what they say overrides what they actually do People have become, maybe it says something to do with social media, it becomes very easy to analyse sort of the spoken word and fewer people sort of bother to scrabble around for the actual things that are going on. And there was an extraordinary, Macron has, 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 has benefited from this odd, odd modern trend to some extent. There was an extraordinary example the other week with his speech on the centenary of the armistice where he talked about the problems of nationalism and, and the scourge of nationalism. Now, there are all sorts of things you can do in this area. There are all sorts of things to be said. Whether or not that was the right time, you know, it's a matter of personal taste. Here's the oddity. 
How can you make this excoriating attack on nationalism at the same time as you're reinstituting national service? It makes almost no sense to me. What is a national service for if not the nation? And, and this sort of points to, to, to several things of our times. I say not just that odd thing about the difference between words and actions, but also the, the confused thinking that is still going on about what, even now, I mean, sorry to get sort of slightly onto the historical thing, but even now, dredging over the, the 20th century and coming up with such sort of bold conclusions, which lead, of course, conveniently to your own vision of the future, just seems to be another part of a deep confusion that's going on about how we got where we are in Europe mm. and what we should be doing moving forward. And, that's a great know. point on the, on the armistice. And you know, we clearly don't agree with everything about the, the shape of the EU or what follows. But I really felt, I think we missed a big opportunity. A big opportunity was missed, I should say. I, you know, rampantly Germanophile in many ways. I thought the moment when we had the German and French armistice commemoration was absolutely the moment that the British needed to be there and they should have been invited. And that, that was exactly that moment where, as you rightly point out, something was being pulled out of the 20th century conveniently, effectively, to say France and Germany lead the EU, the rest of you get out of the way, Theresa May's off on some beach having to do a different commemoration. I thought it was a, a really very, very bad moment. And I think also exactly the sort of thing that when you look back, you're not taking the one year, the two year, you're looking over the 10 year period, you'll think that was a missed opportunity. And Douglas, earlier this year, we had this other piece by John O'Sullivan. He was looking at the battle between East and West <laughs> in Europe, talking about Germany and France versus the Visegrad Four. I mean, who do you think's fared better out of those two sides this year? Well, I mean, there was a, a clear ongoing part of this contest. I think the Visegrad group have seen events move towards them as it happens. I think I think there's a, there's an I mean in, in the many many tensions and pulls that are going on in Europe this is one of the most interesting ones that's why I've written about it a bit because I'm struck by the fact that the Visegrad Four they're not a very significant block compared to Germany or France and they're treated as minor players but they also get lectured in a strange way by the West and in a way that I think people should think about slightly more I mean. They are still talked about as if they are junior players who simply have to grow up and learn and become like the rest of us. And I, you know, <laughs> there are arguments within that, obviously, but I think there's also an extraordinary lack of humility. It's, it's, it's quite hard, I think, to continue to argue solely on those grounds at a time, for instance, when it's it's Paris that's have, that shops are shutting every weekend in the four weekends before Christmas, so the shopkeepers can't... You know, it's, it's like, what are you doing so well in Paris and in Berlin that means you just keep on, without any embarrassment, lecturing these countries about their very different view of their future? And just one other point on that. You know, a very striking poll was released this week about attitudes towards anti-Semitism across the EU. What was the country, of all of those polled where Jews domestically said they had least fear of anti-Semitism. It was Hungary. Now, we've had for recent years this endless trope about the racist, anti-Semitic, Visegrad groups and so on. But it's, it's, it is the Jewish leadership in Berlin who has told Jews in Berlin not to walk out on the streets of Berlin or other major cities wearing their, their kippahs. It is not in Budapest 
it's in Berlin. Now, this points, to, as I say, this central and very important question, which is, what is it you've been doing so well? That means not just that you think that you can keep doing it, but that everybody else should emulate you. What is it by the end of 2018 that presents pe people with the idea that Merkel's way was better than Orban? Oh, I completely disagree with you on almost everything you've just said. I thought said. so. Yeah. No, we really do disagree because yeah, I think for a start, you're conflating self-reporting. So look, the self-reporting of anti-Semitism in Hungary is much weaker, more weakly developed than it is in the long-standing Western democracies. There's sometimes a tendency sort of over-egg fears in the West. There's a tendency to, to suppress them in the former Eastern Bloc. Very spent med years. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a bit of a cultural sociology, which I think you, you, you might accept sometimes can happen. So we can't exactly compare like with like. And the other question I would put to you is this. If you look at the many aspects in which I think you have a good point that the Visegrad 4, I think, has been pushed to the side, but more actually in terms of the structures of the EU than actually now at right time to challenge them on behaviours is exactly now. Because if you say, oh, what are we doing so right? Well, I'll tell you exactly what we're doing so right. That if you really feel that you've got a case, a, a legal, a moral case on something like anti-Semitism, and with all the flaws of the societies in the West of Europe, go to the courts in Germany, go to the courts in France, go to the courts in Britain, make your case in these countries. I would not be so confident doing so under Viktor Orban in Hungary. I would know that the system is in many ways stacked against me when it suits the system to be so. Maybe about my Jewishness, maybe about my business, maybe about my newspaper group. And the fact is, you don't know. And that there are veils and there are levels of obfuscation and oppression which are building up again. And I'm surprised well, that you say it's OK, well, Douglas, no, because it actually it. follows a lot from the Cold War, which you and I have a fairly similar view sure. on in terms of the impact on so. this society. I don't say it's OK. I say that there are all sorts of criticisms can be made of all four of the countries and uh, all sorts of civil rights groups and others do. My point is there is there is a major issue on that with the fact, and I've seen it all firsthand. I mean, for goodness sake, if you if you, if you speak to the Jewish leadership and and members of the community in Budapest, it just you do not have the same thing you get in Berlin these days. And it's I don't deny that bits of the German state work better and more clearly than other parts but of, so of sorry, the EU. But, but I just have to throw the obvious phrase George Soros at you. Know, you don't have to support everything George Soros does or how he wants to use his money for advocacy. And I think there are some areas of difficulty around that. But if you have someone who's basically, his university has been closed effectively by the state under his nose and the word Jewish is attached to every criticism of him, are you just missing well, the word for trees? Uh, uh, well, first of all... <laughs> We could get into that about the Central University and George Soros. And it was a thing, you know it isn't. It's, well, it's an enormously complex issue, and I think most people would deeply regret that it would move. The issue with Soros in particular is interesting because, of course, there is a precedent for this, which is Israel. When George Soros was funding NGOs that were undermining the state of Israel within the state of Israel, the state of Israel had a serious problem with this and tried to get legislation passed that would stop those NGOs being able to, for instance, find out things that members of the IDF did and expose them in order to get them out of the West Bank and so on. Now there were so there were there were things that happened there which did not get they got international criticism but not the international opprobrium 
that's been coming the way once you're talking about George Soros operate, his NGO <coughs> operating in a European context. Now, I don't deny, and I've said many times, that, that, that much of the campaign around Soros has been deeply ugly. And I don't deny that some of the things that people are playing into and some of the echoes and the bells they're hoping to ring don't exist. But I come back to this major point because it's very important for the future of Europe and this East and West divide, which is, which is emerging, which is. It seems to be the idea currently that we're holding that Angela Merkel did something that was at the very least, a big mistake. It's had a palpable effect on her country. It's made a demonstrable, even by the German authorities' own figures, impact on all sorts of parts of German life, including the security of people in Germany. Uh, but it Would seemed you know, to... Uh, let me, no let me just, evidence for that whatsoever. Do you think uh, we're just in going January, to... In January of this, of this year, the stats came out of Germany saying that I think it was at least nine out of ten of crimes that were committed in one of the states that part of the uptick had been because of people who'd come in in the last three yeah, years. And, you know, and I can't remember which state it was. But I, 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 it, it doesn't really it matter. Part. The fact is, if you have a large influx of single men of a certain age, no matter what your yes, system, you're going to see absolutely. a crime but, Which comes back to the point of, that it might not therefore be a wise thing to do. But here's a, here's a strange thing. By the time we've got to this stage in 2018, the assumption seems to be that Angela Merkel did what she did, and it may have been catastrophic, but it was for good reasons. But I don't see where, any sense that it's catastrophic. I go to Germany all the time. I live in Germany all the time. I mean, where is your evidence that it is remotely catastrophic? You have a society that has... No, I'm sorry, but if you if you actually walk around German cities, German towns, you don't see the evidence. Because what you see is a society that is slow on the uptake about integration because it hasn't had it. It's a very good example of why you need to keep practising integration, which I think you would also be, be in, in, in favour of culturally and religiously. I think, you know, there's just... I'm going to just put my finger on it. There's a desire to you know, sort, of, sort of make this worse than it is because it's, it's a convenient line of argument which just sort of says what? What does it say? It says, when in doubt, like, don't let anybody well, in. And that's really what I think no, you're when, uh, No, my, my, my argument would not be when in doubt, don't let anybody in. When in doubt, don't let more than a million people in whose identities you haven't even bothered to check and you're going to have to leave for other people to mop up. Don't do that. Very unwise. But but as for the, I just would would push back on the on the uh, on the day to day thing. I mean, every day's newspapers in Germany now have stories in them that you just wouldn't have believed a few years ago. Just last week, there was this poor girl who was working at a migrant centre, working for a migrant charity, asked the migrant to live with her and her her father, and then her eighty something year old father has his throat cut and uh, and he's killed by the guy who's living with them. And that was just another day's story in Germany. And, and those those are. Ah, those do mount up and I think they do they should at some point come to the door of the political class that decided to make an extraordinarily unwise decision just finally we couldn't have a discussion about Europe without mentioning the dreaded Brexit and yeah. obviously Brexit Britain is obsessed with Europe at the moment do you think Europe is as obsessed with Brexit Britain no, I don't think it is. But this is a bit of a sort of twist, if you like, in my argument. I think it should be much more than it is. I think it has, and I you do a lot of you talk of this in, in continental Europe and Germany and in France and beyond. I always feel that there's a, does, a desire to say they're not that interested in it. It's never top of agendas. At the same time, I get more calls to talk on uh, on other broadcast media in Europe. So I think there's a sort of, we're not interested, but we really have to keep 
talking to you about it. I think they're fascinated, I think a little bit scared, a bit disdainful, that is certainly true, and and often don't understand the real drivers behind the Brexit vote. So there is an element of the EU which says we don't want to deal with it because they'd really rather not know the answer. Mm. The problem if we flipped it around is we haven't done a great job with the answer. I mean, the scenes uh, which we've we've seen in Westminster this week would hardly be the best retail argument uh, for British parliamentary democracy, which I'm otherwise extremely attached to for all the reasons that have come up in this uh, conversation and this creeping relativism of the right. But I I do feel, you know, we've obviously had a rough old time because our system is sort of not coping with the consequences of Brexit. I think actually if you dig down, some of the most interesting books I've read this year, both in French and in German, are books by, you could say, by people who are a bit outside the mainstream, but it was well, what does this Brexit thing mean for us? They're much more interesting than any of those ghastly speeches that we're subjected to from Brussels. I think Douglas and I, for all our other differences, might uh, uh, agree with that. I think there is an intellectual interest in where the Brexit thing is going Mm. to take Europe. Yes, it's almost as if it's taken this amount of time for the sort of first bit of the shock to to, to be absorbed and for the thinking to sort of start beginning again. I I think that at some point that has to, however, have an impact on the structures on the people at the top of the EU. I think I probably said on this podcast before that one of the most striking with this country, goodness knows, has made the biggest possible balls up of the Brexit process to date. It's extreme embarrassment for this country, which would be much more embarrassed than we are. And it's it's exposed an entire political class in an appalling fashion, one that will take a long time for our own system to get over. But there is one thing about this which which I think still always needs to be borne in mind, which is that the British public have 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 flayed a political class over the Brexit business. We had an election where we flayed them again. And in some ways, that's as it should be. And even when one feels a bit down about this uh, experience, it's worth just remembering that at the other side of the negotiating table, nothing has changed. It's the same people, same people running the shop, same people sitting there. You know, Juncker loses... (laughs) The UK, let's put it the other way around, self-aggrandizing. Juncker loses the UK, but he doesn't lose anything himself. And, you know, when I feel down about Brexit, I often think about that thing, that their reaction to us leaving has been, to my mind, the best demonstration of why we need to leave. You're like the ancient mariner, though. It can take about 50, 60, 100 years until right. you get any benefit from what you've just laid I out. thought you were going to say that we're going to take 60 or 70 or 100 years before Jean-Claude Juncker left the European <laughs> Commission. <laughs> Could also way. be right. Thank you, Douglas and Anne. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. And last, we take a look across the Atlantic at President Trump's second year in office. In foreign policy, Trump kicked off the year with a strongman approach to North Korea and finished with a trade war with China. The Mueller inquiry, try as it might, hasn't quite got him yet, and Trump has also successfully instated Brett Kavanaugh as Supreme Court judge. Freddie Gray, the editor of Spectator US, discusses the American year with Sir Christopher Mayer, former British ambassador to Washington, and Kate Andrews, American political commentator. 
Christopher, probably one of the overriding themes of this year has been Trump's trade war and the ratcheting up of tensions with China over tariffs. Is he winning this war or is China playing a longer, smarter game? I guess that China is playing a longer, smarter game, but they're worried and they're quite scared by what he's doing and what more he may do. I mean, when we get to the end of the four years and we draw up the balance sheet, we'll probably say that Trump has engaged in a net negative for the United States and for himself personally. But along the way, he's causing a massive amount of angst, including in Beijing, and he does have the power to hurt the Chinese. And it may be, at the margin, quite salutary that he's doing so. Kate, I imagine you're quite a sort of free market person. You probably balk at tariffs. But you must admit that Trump is actually making an adjustment that a lot of Americans have said for a long time needs to be made. He's making an adjustment, particularly looking at China, that a lot of the world has thought needed to be made. The deeply frustrating thing about Trump is that he's doing it in a way that alienates his allies and his friends, not just those who might need a scolding. So he's threatening to put tariffs on EU countries, for example, threatening a trade war with the European Union. Now, I know a lot of people here in the UK are frustrated with the EU's negotiating tactics, but to come out of complete left field and to be threatening one's friends is not really going to help in the long term to tackle issues with trade and China. And I agree with Christopher that in the long run, this is not going to benefit the American people and his voters. They might like his language. I mean, a lot of his base does. Even if even if the impact is different, they like that he's being tough and saying what he thinks and whatnot. But at the end of the day, a trade war hurts your own consumers. It increases costs and it puts the global economy in jeopardy, which will always hit back at home. So, you know, he might have the rhetoric right, but the policy is still fundamentally wrong. Although Trump has, I I know this is sort of very dim economics, but Trump has boasted that a lot of money is coming into the coffers through these tariffs already. We're seeing huge amounts of income coming in. And in fact, a whole feature of the Trump presidency has been an enormous amount of capital flows into America. And perhaps that is a result of his protectionism. Well, I think you've got to look at the short term, medium term, long term, I think the short-term beneficial impact is precisely, as you say, there'll be a surge of revenue coming into the United States from tariffs being paid by the Chinese. But, and indeed by, as Kate was saying, by by other closer friends and allies like uh, the Europeans. But in the medium to long term, people start to adjust for this. They start to do other things to avoid the tariffs. They start to divert their trade. All kinds of things can be done in trade policy to mitigate the effect of of tariffs. So I do think that over the long term, it won't work to the advantage uh, of the United States. But there's plenty of bounty around right now for Donald Trump to point out and say, look, it's working. Look at all this cash that's coming in. It's a very short-term view, that, but he is a very short-term man. Perhaps he is a short-term man, but Kate, I mean, let's move on to Korea now. That was another thing where everybody said it was disastrous, it was crazy, what was he doing? He was threatening nuclear apocalypse. And then he suddenly started to make what seemed to be progress. Now, we can argue about whether he has actually made progress, but he certainly wasn't, it was not as stupid a move to open up towards Kim as people thought, or to threaten Kim and then open up towards him. 
Yeah, it turns out that he's got more diplomacy in him than others would have given him credit for. I don't think that forgives him and egging on his allies and his poor trade policy, but it it turns out that he was able to get King John Um around the table. I think we have to keep an open mind and see where it goes. It is certainly not the case that he has brought peace to Korea. It is not the case at all that North Korea are taking down the walls and lowering their barriers and becoming a liberal and open democracy. But he has made more advancement in that area than the likes of, say, President Barack Obama, who always flagged himself up to be a president of of peace and understanding. So, you know, I I think we have to wait and see. It's hard to demonize him at this point, and I would love to see him be successful. On the other hand, the one thing Trump is great at is putting on a show. And if this turns out just to be a show, obviously, in the medium term, that's going to be an overall disappointment. Do you think, Christopher, that maybe Trump is the sort of leader the world needs in the sense that we've now moved, we're moving away from the time of kind of liberal international order. We are moving into a kind of strongman era, it seems. And Trump is not a benign strongman, perhaps, but he's certainly not a tyrant in 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 a in the way that perhaps Putin is. I, I would say two things on that. Just one comment on North Korea. We don't actually know there's a great question about Kim and Donald Trump and that is who whom? Who screwed whom? We're not quite sure yet. Who got the advantage out of that? There are plenty of people who would say that Kim gave away nothing and completely snowed Donald Trump. The verdict lies with history. I'm not quite sure what the answer is to who whom. But there's another point in here, which is a much wider one, about the unravelling of the post-Second World War liberal international order, largely created by the United States with the help of allies like the United Kingdom. Now, we all hoped that as the thing started to fall apart, particularly after the financial crisis of 2008, and actually after what appeared to be a benign event, the collapse of the Soviet Union, that the liberal international order would become strengthened and more entrenched. We now see Donald Trump as an agent of his unravelling. He delights in its unravelling. The the more bits he unravels, like NATO, by accusing the Allies, quite rightly, of not paying sufficiently into their own defence accounts, is part of that unravelling. Is he a dictator? No, he probably would like to be a dictator. If you get rid of... (laughs) I mean, now he's got... He probably thinks he's got the Supreme Court under his thumb now. He'd like to uh, probably dissolve Congress if he could whenever he wants to. And he does envy the powers that people like Putin and, and Xi have. What Trump doesn't see that is that each of these dictators, in, let's include Erdogan in there as well, and even uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, all these people have feet of clay. And he might envy their trappings, but, does, when he, but he doesn't have the intellectual capacity or the will to look at it actually on, in what their power consists. And I think that is a mistake he makes. Well, Kate, speaking of Putin, let's move on to the Russia probe, the seemingly never-ending Russia probe, the Mueller investigation, which it seems, by what we hear, is, is wrapping up. Has it already harmed Trump? Do you think it's going to harm Trump? Do you think it's going to bring down the presidency still? What do you think is going to happen with Mueller in the next few weeks? Well, I hate to make predictions, Freddie, but if I had to make one for 2019, it would be that President Trump will remain President Trump. 
there has been no meaningful insight so far anyway in the Mueller investigation to suggest any form of collusion with Russia. Now, maybe it's coming out, maybe the investigation's wrapping up and they found everyone guilty, but no evidence so far or no leaks so far would suggest that this has been the case. I think it's been hugely polarizing in America to have this investigation go on as long as it has. It has only fueled the fire of those who never believed that he was a legitimate president to begin with. And it's also created a very strong base of support for the president, who has on multiple occasions now been able to say, look, they still can't get me. And all, in the meanwhile, it's it's badly distracted from the domestic policy agenda at home that needs to be addressed. In the midterms this year, it was the first time in a long time that Americans said that health care was actually their number one priority over things like the economy and certainly above things like the Russian investigation. So I always thought it was right that there was a special investigation into this, but I'm happy that it's coming to an end. And assuming that nobody's found overwhelmingly guilty of these things, it will be very important for the Democrats in particular to move on and to not abuse their new control of the House to keep this going. Yes, Christopher, it seems like after the midterms, now that the Democrats have control of the House, they're going to try and make his life hell with lots of other investigations and, you know, probes into his businesses and business empire and so on. Is he a sort of lamed up president now? Or once the Mueller inquiry finishes up and he's not found guilty, might he be actually a bit freer? Well, I think it is. it remains to be seen that when the new Democratic-controlled Congress takes its seat in the new year, whether that is indeed what they're going to do. I mean, I think you have a tension inside the Democratic majority between the kind of Nancy Pelosi tribe, venerable speaker, she's 77 years old, she reaches back to a rather different tradition of, uh, of politics in, in the United States, and she remembers very well what happened to those who tried to impeach Bill Clinton back in 98-99. And absent a smoking gun of gigantic size and incredible accuracy, I agree with Kate. Donald Trump is going to survive. He's probably going to see out his, his presidency. But we may see some other quite significant figures in his entourage uh, going up before the beak, before the judge. I think Don Jr. is, is very vulnerable in this. And maybe Jared Kushner also. The thing that would get Trump is, is the passage from conflict of interest, i.e. trying to build a Trump Tower in Moscow when he was running for the, for the Republican nomination, and actual collusion and trying to bring Hillary down. And it's the latter that is not yet proven. There's a ton of circumstantial evidence for the former. On balance, I would say in his second half, he will be a more diminished, he'll be a diminished force compared with his first half, his first two years, which were truly a case of Trump ascendant. Kate, we've seen that he's able to pull rabbits out of hats before. And I mean, he, he said before the midterms, he said that, you know, if, if the Democrats win the House, I'll figure it out. He's already made sort of open gestures towards Pelosi, and he may just turn out to be a much more canny political figure than we think. So I've always thought he's been canny. This idea that he's a buffoon in the White House is giving him far too much credit, actually. He's obviously been responsible for some of the horrible things he's both said and done. But I, I think he's always been canny. And this is the businessman in him, the, the wheeling and dealing. Now that I have to work with Pelosi, I'll stop calling her mean names and I'll actually try to do some good work. I agree with Christopher that I do think that his power is certainly diminished. This isn't unusual in American politics. American voters like to swap 
swap the power around. They give it to the Republicans. They give it back to the Democrats. We really like to have a mixed Congress where different people are in power for that for that purpose of checks and balances. So in many ways, it's a reflection on Trump. Trump was a consideration when, when voters went into the midterm elections. But it's also a normal part of our democratic process. So the real question isn't whether or not this was a huge referendum on Trump. It's whether or not now that the verdict's in, Trump's going to play fair, play nicely and play well with the other side. Just picking up immediately on what Kate has just said, I do remember Bill Clinton, 1994 midterms, the Gingrich Revolution. And mm. he had one of his most profitable periods of legislative activity in the second half of his first term, working with the Ging- Gingrich Republicans mm-hmm. in, in, in the House of Representatives. You can't, although history doesn't repeat itself ever exactly, you can't totally exclude the idea of a kind of unholy alliance between Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi to get certain types of legislation through. It seems improbable, but it's not impossible. Well, they agree well, yes, on things. His, his approval rating is about where Clinton's was at this time. I suppose the difference might be, Kate or, or Christopher, whoever wants to pick this up, is that Clinton was was a, was a, a triangulator. He was going towards the middle always and, and trying to find a, a kind of unity. Or he wasn't trying, but he succeeded sometimes. Whereas Trump is the opposite, perhaps. Politicians are so much more divided now, as is the public. Even during the Clinton administration when he was facing impeachment, which was you know, a very intense time, I would argue that there was still more political unity, especially when it came to certain ideas, as you say, centrist ideas, usually very free market ideas, than there is today. And if we look at the Obama administration and the fact that he essentially became a lame duck president once the Republicans took massive control of the House, you could see something very similar happening to Trump. But we have to remember, Trump is not a typical Republican. He has rewritten what it means to be a Republican voter. It's become far more populist, far more tribal, much more anti-immigration than Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush ever were. And crucially, he's, he's not opposed to certain kinds of government spending. Him and Nancy Pelosi might find agreement on infrastructure spending and things of the like. So, you know, we have to wait and see if, if it's possible for them to put the politics aside and find agreement on this, I think in the age of Trump, that's going to be extremely difficult. But I wouldn't totally rule it out. I mean, Freddie, he's not really either a Republican or a Democrat, is he? He's Trump. He, exactly, no. he's Trump. And that gives him a lot of freedom of action, actually, if he wishes to, to, to take it. Well, but let's look at those midterms again. In the, I mean... A lot of people are saying he, he seems to have lost the Rust Belt, which he won so crucially in 2016. How can he win in 2020 with the way the political map seems to be shaping up, looking at the midterms? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all sure because I always, get, I always get anxious when people talk about the demographics behind election results, about great swathes of people. Like in the old days, it was soccer mums. Now it's something else mums. I can't remember what it is now. And they are consigned. They are consigned to one voting block, and then then people living in the suburbs with high school graduate graduation or college degrees, As- aspirational. Aspir- yeah. I don't know. It, it actually drives me apeshit. All that stuff. I I don't, <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't really follow it. I what I would say is that maybe his irreducible core is it thirty five percent? Maybe it is. Is perhaps more reduced than it was before the midterms, that he has less of a hold on the American electorate than he had before the midterms. But the point is, 
This is all so very difficult to read. It's even harder than Brexit, to be perfectly frank, because we don't know who he's going to run against. I assume he's going to run a second time as long as his health holds up and Muller hasn't knocked him out. He runs a second time. Who's he going to run against? I'm sorry, I've changed the subject slightly. Until we no, no, know from this mass, pullulating mass of possible Democratic Republican candidates uh, who's going to run if he goes for, for a second term, it is very hard to calculate his strength, his essential strength and weakness for a coming presidential run. If I, if I have a favourite anywhere, I, I don't really know him from Adam, but I kind of like the look of him, it is Sherrod Brown from Ohio. Ohio is a classic Trumpian state. He swept the board, I think, in, in, in the midterms, except where Sherrod Brown was concerned. What did Sherrod Brown have in particular which gave him strength? He had a rumpled suit, a populist touch to him, which is precisely the kind of de Democrat, I think, who does well against Trump, who is, at the end of the day, a plutocrat. Kate, let's put that to you. I mean, who are the Democrats who can win the blue-collar vote? I mean, we, Biden seems to be the kind of person that everyone goes back to when they, they He's the Democrats years old. are looking for a winner. Joe Biden, formal, former vice president, and Sherrod Brown are the two names that I hear called up most when, it, when we talk about that white working class vote in particular and what Trump did so well with in the general election. But I think to this point about whether or not Trump can keep the Rust Belt, Christopher's completely right. It depends on who he runs against. And I think it's more likely that he's going to end up running against a Democratic populist, the likes of Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, who I just read very recently is already getting her campaign machine gear into action. And mm. this is what's going to be so crucial, is that Republican voters and Democratic voters are fundamentally split on what topics matter to them in American politics right now. And Democrats are showing that they care a lot more about the environment and issues of inequality, while the Republicans care a lot more about jobs and the economy. And I think especially in that Rust Belt, if they pick a Democratic populist who uses similar, if not more extreme language than Hillary Clinton did, I think a lot of those working class voters are going to fear for their jobs and fear for their livelihood. And unlike someone like Sherrod Brown, who could reassure them that they're going to be balanced about this, a populist candidate's going to go for it, knowing that that will energize the Democratic base, but not bring in those swing voters. So at this point, whether or not Trump wins again, A, will have to do with where the economy's at, but B, will very much have to do with the kind of candidate they put up against him. I think for what it's worth, I think they're going to go with Beto or Beto because they can't help themselves. And they'll, <laughs> they'll convince themselves that he's a populist when he really isn't. <laughs> well, then maybe they'd win. Who knows? I mean, I think... Of the and then they win. Yeah, that'd well, be even worse. Something... He looks like an American Macron to me, so beware of that. But... He, he feels a lot like a Macron, doesn't he? Yeah. And I think we'll see burning burning buildings in Washington. So, something giants, something out of the midterms, which was very interesting, was that the moderate Democrats actually won the day. The more populist Democrats in those local elections, a few of them were successful, but the majority of Democrats that actually took back the House were those that were far more moderate. And that might, I don't want to get too excited here, but that just <laughs> might be the American people saying we'd really love to have an adult back in the room. And if the Democrats yeah. could find an adult, I suspect Sarah they could Brown's do pretty well. Man. I don't know who the woman he may be. would be, though. He may be. Adults don't make news. Old, well, the, the women are standing out at the moment as being a bit more populist. Yeah. yeah. That's true, yeah. I'd like to wrap up by talking about what I thought was the weirdest part of the American year, 
which was the nomination and elevation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. First of all, Christopher, to me, it seemed like I started to worry about America because it seemed to be so mad, the the whole sort of circus around it, the extraordinary Senate hearings. It felt a bit like culture wars were boiling over. What what did you think of it? Well, I thought, the thing I thought about it was, that, yeah, culture wars were about to boil over and you know the whole thing was going to become a sort of steaming cauldron. And then it went away. As soon, yeah. as, it, as, soon as he was confirmed, he kind of disappeared. Where is he? You know, he's yes. gone. Now, Which made the whole thing feel quite fake then. It, it, it felt quite fake. It felt they'd all been given their parts and Brett Kavanaugh had sort of overacted when he did his thing and um, the lady whose name I've now forgotten who was... Dr. Ford. Do, Dr. Dr. Ford. Christine Blasey Ford. Yeah, Ford. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> she, that's uh, and that's then how she, much it went away. Yeah, and, but, and then <laughs> it went away and, and, and actually the charges against him, although they were ancient, were really quite serious. But it all seemed to go away. Now, has it left any lasting scars? And did we see those scars during the midterm elections? It seemed to me, watching from this side of the Atlantic, that a lot of the Trump irreducible base were a bit fired up by this. They thought, you know, know, our our boys being savagely attacked by crazed Democrats and leftists. But I was not aware of any lasting impact on the Democratic side of the fence but it might have been on the feminist side or the women's side. And how that plays out in electoral terms, I'm not at all clear. I thought it helped Trump a bit in the midterms or helped some Republican candidates in the midterms. Well, certainly seemed to help in the Senate. If you look at the polls, they sort of go swinging more in a Republican direction after well, the They Kavanaugh. were sort of these rural... I mean, the senators are now portrayed as sort of right-wing backwoodsmen who come out of the forest one day, you know, to be elected Senate senator from, from a rural community. It's kind of crazy. Well, I, I have it here. Every Democratic senator who voted against Brett Kavanaugh in a Trump state lost their competitive re-election bid. So it did have a, oh, it, it did have a, a meaningful impact. And you know, I, I think Americans just despise the kangaroo court that they were forced to watch. And mm. if you're on Brett Kavanaugh's side, if you believe his story, or if you're on Dr. Ford's side and believe her compelling case, I think we can all agree that that needs to be carried out in a court of law, it needs to be carried out by professionals through our very rigorous justice system, not through a kangaroo court held up by politicians and those who clearly have political interest in one side winning over the other. And one of the reasons I think helped the Republicans in particular is because it seemed like the Democrats wanted to have trial by Twitter, wanted to have this play out in a way that you wouldn't have to provide evidence. And, you know, most Americans sitting there for both of them thought both Brett and Dr. Ford deserved to have evidence heard and deserved to have their story told. And, you know, actually, interestingly, not not only did it fire up Trump's base, I think it's one of the few topics in two years that has brought the Republican Party together. Never Trumpers like me have have thought to themselves, gosh, I never want to see that again. And it would certainly motivate me, at least locally, to vote for a Republican candidate. Well, it seems that most Americans, thankfully, still believe in jurisprudence and innocent until proven guilty. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, we still have that, Freddie, because everything else, everything we thought we knew has gone out the window. Everything else is on fire. It's all wobbling. I always think of it as wobbling, like there's a kind of earthquake earthquake tremor underneath and everything is shaking and wobbling and some things fall down and some things just manage to stand up, like innocent until proven guilty. 
Just very lastly, actually, let's wrap up with the funeral of George H.W. Bush. Now, I thought, Christopher, first of all, perhaps you knew him a bit. Did you, did you come across him at I all? I knew him quite well. Yeah. I knew him quite Tell well. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, he was exactly as his image used to be, a courteous, gentlemanly American aristocrat who was at home up in Kennebunkport on, on, on the East Coast. He didn't have any of George W.'s, his old, oldest son's, Texan trappings at all. And he was this extraordinarily courteous gentleman, very, very kind, twinkle in his eye, always interesting to talk to. Even before I was ambassador, when I was a, had a junior role in the embassy, I ran into him and he was always happy to talk. And I've never forgotten that, I think, in my opinion, under him, he had the most competent foreign policy team of any American president in my lifetime. And this led to an extraordinary contribution uh, uh, to the end of the Cold War and to the first Iraq war. Behind the, sorry, I'm going on too long, but behind the gentlemanly persona, there was a fairly ruthless politician. I mean, he destroyed yes. uh, Governor Dukakis of Massachusetts in the 1988 election pretty ruthlessly. And then he, and then he got confident and looked at his watch when he was running against Clinton on a televised debate. So looking at your watch and not being able to know how a supermarket works wasn't the greatest I was quite struck by that. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure he was a very graceful man in person, but he, he seemed to be being sort of canonised a little bit. And it's worth remembering that all presidents are very, you know, ruthless men. It's, it's, a, it's not a normal ambition, as JFK said. Did you think, Kate, that the, the, the sort of praise for him got a little bit too much? No, I look, there are many aspects, particularly when it comes to foreign policy, that people like myself and others who are relative, relatively sympathetic to many of his ideas will disagree with. But I often think that in these moments when somebody immediately passes away, it's, it's very important to remember the human side of this. I'm also thinking of Senator John McCain, who we lost this year as well. These are two neoconservatives, and many people will take issue with the, the, the ideas they had about America's role abroad and with the military, but they also dedicated a huge amount of their time to public service and to America's safety when they were younger. And these are things to be applauded. It doesn't mean there isn't a time and place to criticize, but, you know, I, I think the, the humanity in all of us, and also to bring back some of that civility in politics, means that if somebody that you happen to disagree with politically passes away, this is hopefully a time to remember them well and to let the criticisms definitely sit within history, but maybe not right within that moment. I think there was a bit of over-egging the canonization of George H.W. Bush, precisely because Donald Trump was in the cathedral for the memorial service. And I think yes. people were deliberately striking a contrast between the model that Bush Sr. struck as President of the United States and the one that Donald Trump represents today. I agree with that, but to end on a sort of hopeful note, I thought what was quite cheering was, whereas, the, whereas John McCain's funeral became a sort of week-long Trump hate fest, Bush's, there was a sort of, there was hints of unity, you know, I mean, the Bushes invited him to the funeral, Trump himself behaved surprisingly like an adult, you know, he, he said the right things, he even tried to look sad when he went to go and see him lying in state. And I mean, I, it's sort of, there might even be a hope that America can come together in, in moments like this. I mean, there was a lot of emotion invested in it. I did watch uh, a lot of the service because, because I, yeah. I knew 
Bush Senior and Bush Junior really quite well. I was really interested in it. And, of course, George, George W. was extremely emotional about his father's passing. And this, I think, travelled to everybody who was in the cathedral and in, on other occasions as well. And even Trump, with his total lack of empathy for anything or anybody or any event, even he, it penetrated him to behave himself. And behave himself, he did. For me, it's all about looking for the silver linings of the Trump presidency. And I cannot wait, whether it's 2020 or 2024, when Trump is out of the office, (laughs) when he joins that president's club, that club of (laughs) ex-presidents, and they stand up there together, or they sit up there together, and they chat. I am so excited to see the interactions of Trump with Carter and W and Obama. That is going to be a remarkable sight. Carter will be in the hundreds by then, won't he? That's, yeah, that's a good point. But, you know, fingers crossed. <laughs> He'll live on. The Well, on that very cheering note, I think we'll end it. Thanks very much both. Thanks, Freddie. Thanks, Freddie. That was Freddie Gray with Sir Christopher Mayer and Kate Andrews. And that's all for this year from the Spectator podcast. We do hope you've enjoyed it. But Spectator Radio will still be with you throughout Christmas. It won't be daily, but do expect a weekly books podcast and some little bits here and there. Also, it's a very good opportunity to catch up with some of the old podcasts from this year. And for more Brexit coverage, why not subscribe to Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast? To hear more from Freddie on American politics, check out the weekly Americano podcast. And we've also got a special Christmas subscription offer. You can get a year's subscription to The Spectator for £99. And with that, you'll also get either a free bottle of Paul Roger champagne worth £60 or an Aspinall's wallet. To get this, just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Christmas. And so from all of us here at The Spectator, Merry Christmas. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.